You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. Stephen Levine is Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. He is the author of several books on sexuality, sexual dysfunction, intimacy and love. He's the senior editor of the first, second and third editions of the Handbook of Clinical Sexuality for Mental Health Professionals. He's also been teaching and providing clinical care and writing since 1973. He and two colleagues received a Lifetime Achievement Masters and Johnson's Award from the Society for Sex Therapy and Research in March 2005. And in 2021, he was given his Department of Psychiatry's Hall of Fame Award. In this conversation today, we discuss the chain of trust that exists in academia. And we also explored what it is to be a human and the nature of the true self and the nature of love and how we contain multitudes. Hello, Stella. Well, hello there, Sasha. We're very excited about our guest today. Yeah, Dr. Stephen Levine. And I've been a great fan for many years. And now um, I think this podcast is going to be scintillating. So I can't wait to get into your brain, Stephen. <laughs> I look forward to your entry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so where will we start? You, 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 you really entered this field a long time ago, didn't you? Yes. Uh, in 1973, after 30 days in, in practice, uh, I, I was at a department of psychiatry and had a half-time private practice. I got a man who told me he was sitting in the backyard with a gun in, in his mouth under his oak tree, and he decided either to kill himself or to become a woman. And... Um, um, he went to see a psychiatrist who used to be my supervisor a month ago. And uh, my supervisor said, well, there was an expert in human sexuality down at the university. Why don't you go see him? And that was the beginning of my career uh, working with uh, people who wanted to change their sex. You know, he almost killed himself uh, at that point in 1973 and nine years later, he, in fact, did kill himself after he changed his gender uh, and left his family and left his country and then returned back to live in America and just decided to end his life. So that was my introduction, my nine-year introduction to uh, adults who wanted to change their sex. This was a highly accomplished man. He was the head of our county library system. He had a degree in divinity, and uh, he was a joy to talk to. And uh, uh, he, one day, about four years before he actually killed himself, he slashed his at his neck. And uh, when he was admitted to the hospital, he, he told me that I was deficient as a therapist because I failed to investigate how angry he has been all of his life at his parents. And um, 
So uh, he was quite an educational experience for me, both as a he and as a she. And and uh, she and I wrote a paper in the Archives of Sexual Behavior in 19, I think, 83, called Increasingly Ruth, uh, towards a, an understanding of sex reassignment surgery. And then in 1984, when he died, I wrote a letter to the editor about uh, uh, Ruth's uh, suicide. So I've been accused of being very conservative on this issue and biased by, by that experience. And in fact, I plead guilty. I am, I, I, that was my introduction. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and unfortunately, it's not the only case uh, of, of people who have aspirations, uh, who think that their troubles as a person will disappear if, if they change their gender presentation and change their bodies. Yeah. And uh, and only to discover that uh, life is not as easy as they imagined, and they didn't escape much. So I plead guilty to being biased, and I think all of us have a kind of bias, and we ought to own it. Mm. Couldn't agree more. Um, I I gather, like Ray, you know, Ray Blanchard's work on autogynephilia would have come much later. Did that enter into your work with this person, or is that inappropriate no, to talk uh, about? Well, no. Uh, uh, Blanchard's concepts came six years after the per, uh, after uh, Ruth's death. Wow. So, uh, uh, I actually don't remember a great deal of the developmental details of that person. Um, uh, I would have to reread the paper, which R Ruth wrote. Uh, much of it. Uh, I suppose where I was going with that is something around the autogynephilia just seems to cause so much pain for everybody concerned. And um, th th that's where I, I kind of, I suppose I landed. I probably jumped too soon, really. But I think, well, yeah. In the 90s, this was a big concept. And, and we were we were worrying about the different pathways towards the declaration of I'm a transsexual person. You know, back then we talked about transsexuals and now we're talking about transgendered, uh, which is a reflection of the changing landscape of, of identity, uh, personal identities. The I think there's a recent study that 63% of the teenagers now, now uh, identify not as a transsexual, but as a non-binary person. Um, so I, I think I forgot where where what I was st starting to talk about. Uh, oh, so oh, what I'm saying in the '90s, uh, the, uh, uh, Ray Blanchard's concepts about autogynephilia uh, were a little hard for me to separate from the concept of fetishistic transvestism. Uh, but uh, the point is, in the '90s, we were very interested in the pathways towards an adult trans identity and uh now that doesn't seem to be nearly as important to the the dominant field what seems to be important is if you declare a trans identity how you got there is totally irrelevant and and the, uh, the only issue is the treatment for it and i find that idea abhorrent and antithetical to everything i know as a, a person who's interested in human development 
and and the influence of the past, how how the past always is infiltrating the present, and mm. it's just as a basic human characteristic, not something unique to trans people. Uh, I you know you've probably heard me say this before. Uh, one of the first things I try to say, if it seems at all relevant to a new trans person, is that. Number one, they're a human being, and what is true about all human beings must be true about them. Yeah, they they think of themselves as a special case, and many of the affirmative clinicians think about them as a special case. And I say, nope, you're a human being. No, so your past is influences how you think and how you feel and how you behave. And and if you've been overwhelmed by some great adversity, that adversity is probably metastasized into your your mental life. And and we need to think about that because this is a very serious decision you're making. You're, this is a life changing decision, and it looks like uh, uh, you are we're not uh, living a fairy tale here. That uh, life can be very more difficult as a trans person than it is as a cis person. So uh, um, what I gathered, um, I think your body of work is fascinating. And what I gathered a lot was that you kind of centered a lot around intimacy and authenticity. And it, it feels that that's the golden thread that kind of runs through a lot of your work. Am I right in thinking that? Well, I guess uh, can I just add on to that? You know, if you are looking at each patient like you are just a human being and what are the things that human beings are known to need or known to thrive with? Obviously, intimacy and connection with others is one of the biggest components that gives us a meaningful life. So can you maybe just expand on um, the work you have done around intimacy and sexuality? Because you've written a lot about it. Well, you see... Um... About 18, 17, 18, 19 years into uh, uh, being a great believer, a passionate member of the psychiatric profession, I began to realize that, uh, number one, the psychiatry profession had not talked much about sex at all, and, and uh, sexual dysfunction, which, which arose in the 70s with Masters and Johnson's work and evolved into psychiatry through Helen Kaplan and some other people, uh, sex became uh, a kind of surrogate concept for something that no one ever spoke about in psychiatry, and that is it became a surrogate concept for love. And so the problems in love were talked about in terms of premature ejaculation and anorgasmia and the lack of sexual desire, whereas when I, I was immersed in these things along with gender, I was much more immersed in sexual dysfunction. But by the, late, by, the er, by the late 80s, I began to realize that my profession and psychology in general basically avoided the concept of love, and I began, I began thinking about love. And in 1973, I was invited to Stanford to be a visiting professor for three days. And, and, and they said I could talk about anything I wanted to talk about. So I decided to talk about love. Now, this was 1993, and uh, I gave this lecture on love, and I didn't know anything about love. And basically, that's what I said. Uh, <laughs> but, well, with but, 1973 or 1993? Uh, no, I'm, 93. Sorry, I'm sorry. Did I say 73? 93. Okay. 93. Yeah, yeah. And so that started me on 
uh, a journey of writing about and read, more importantly, reading about. And I couldn't read about love by psychologists and psychiatrists. I had to read about theologians and philosophers, mm-hmm. and and every song I heard and every play and every movie I saw had to do with love and its disappointments, its frustrations, its barriers. And uh, and I, I there again as a psychiatrist taking care of depressed people and anxious people and addicted people and people who were confused and said they were lost. What they had in common was they were very very profoundly disappointed in the sphere of love. And so between 1993, that first grand rounds I gave, and my first book on love, the uh, uh, demystifying love, um, in I think 2006. Uh, I really had read a lot about love and it began to conceptualize what I like to say love was a noun and what is this thing called love. I had nine definitions and then I said love was a verb, love is a process of two people evolving together. Uh, and so I, so to me I, I began thinking about uh, the psychiatric syndromes that we were called upon to treat in terms of the ability to be successful or unsuccessful in the sphere of love. Now, I realized that this was not a good topic to talk about because if you're sitting in a grand rounds talking to 100 mental health professionals, probably 40% of them have been divorced and another 12, 15% are a process of getting divorced. So they, so they didn't want to talk about disappointments in love. And uh, they didn't even want to talk about the sexual consequences of being disappointed in love. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I, when I feel successful, I, uh, I think about, you know, my papers when, uh, or who read my papers. When I feel unsuccessful, I, I look around and I see that my colleagues still avoid sex and they still avoid love. Uh, so I'm still, I'm not the lone voice, I hope, but I am one of the few voices, as you said, who who begins talking about this, and I talk about this through psychological intimacy, which is the ability to share your subjective self with somebody who, who listens without criticism, who pays a great deal of attention to what you're saying, understands, grasps what you're saying, and feels privileged to hear what you've said. And as a result of that, whether it's two people on a date uh, or husband and wife getting, getting closer again, uh, there is a reestablishment or the initial establishment of the bond between the two people, and that bond has an erotic component. So, so to me, psychological intimacy is the beginnings of love. The essence of love is the ability to share and know another person's internal life and continue to share it, and that creates a wish to have a sexual closeness to the other person. So we see so many people without sexual desire, but it's without sexual desire for their partner as opposed to without sexual desire. And and so in the early 80s, I was writing about the nature of sexual desire. Uh, and I, you know, distinguished between sexual drive, what I like to call horniness, and uh, motivation. Which I don't think the, you're the only person who's used that term, by the way. Right. No, right. No, I, I, I adopted it from my high school days. Okay, and, great. Uh, and, uh, so, so continue, then, and motivation as well. 
Right. So motivation had to do with the willingness to bring one's body to a, per, a particular person or the lack of willingness, the unwillingness. And then there was the cultural or, or value set aspect of, of desire. Uh, is this a normal behavior I want? Is this a moral behavior, an immoral behavior? So obviously you could have sexual desire for somebody uh, Say you're a 45-year-old man, you have a sexual desire for a 14-year-old. Well, somebody would call that immoral. Uh, but it, desire can be conflicted. And so the whole, whole subject of, of sexuality and the subject of love is, a, is an introduction to the nature of human conflict, uh, human dilemma, human conflict. So then if we move to gender and we want to say, oh, this person is a trans person, there's no conflict about that. There's no background that's relevant to that. It's all just biologic, you know. And the only treatment for it is hormones or social change or genital or other bodily transformation. That, that brings me back to, my God, what a special case. What, what an oversimplification. What a... What a classification of you as a non-human person. Because as far as I know, when you were, because I know you, you did great work on um, what is the premature ejaculation and erection problems. You, As far as I know, you had the same idea that let, let's not just throw medicine at this. Let's have a look at what's going on on a deeper level. Yes. Uh, well, for premature ejaculation, the cost-effective treatment for that is now a medication. But, but, uh, uh, and, and I've come to do that, uh, but we used to treat that with, uh, behavioral, th with behavioral uh, approaches. And I think both ways uh, uh, can help. And the question is, what's more cost-effective and what does the person want and what does the couple want? Uh, uh, many in all sexual dysfunctions, I think we really need to look at what's going on between the two people, and not, you know, uh, not just look at the uh, the patient's symptom. This is the problem in psychiatry and in medicine in general. By the way, uh, we have a history of focusing on the patient, and everyone else is their loved one. You know, that's how hospital people talk about it. Uh, their loved ones. Uh, but uh, you and I know that many times their loved ones are very conflictual relationships. They're not really loved ones. Uh, but anyway, the focus on, on, a, on a symptom misses the idea that the real patient is the couple, you see, and, and the dynamics of the, of the two, two people, whether they're gay or, or heterosexual, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so we miss the contributions, and we're looking for very simple things like, well, this is a biologic problem, and and sometimes sexual dysfunction is a biologic problem, and I think that that's one of the reasons to train in, in mental health is to be able to discern when something is organic primarily and when something is primarily psychosocial, interpersonal, and so. We get back to the whole trans person, uh, the trans person, and and I, I think what I've been saying, please don't oversimplify this, please, please. You know, I, I think what's at stake here is not only the trans person's future, but their parents' future, 
and their siblings' future, you see, and their physical future. So again, we have medicine and, and the affirmative care people take the 16-year-old or the 23-year-old or now the 7-year-old, and, and they're saying, well, we have a treatment for this. It's socialization, it's hormones, and it's ultimate surgery. But again, like the guy with premature ejaculation, uh, or the woman who has no sexual desire for her husband after three years, uh, the issue is not the patient per se. The one an, an additional perspective, not to be ignored, is is that gender dysphoria arises within a family, and and what are the social influences on that child? You see. And and so and the impact of, of this has to do, it will will have profound impacts on 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 mothers, fathers, and siblings and grandparents. Uh, you probably have had this experience of having a grandparent come visit you, crying about their grandchild, uh, and it, you know they're old enough to understand what this means uh, more than sometimes the grandchild, uh, and so. Uh, part of my practice in, in trans medicine, so to speak, is dealing with the relatives of the trans person. Uh, and I can't tell you, I, I've never seen parents who weren't profoundly distressed about this. Even if they eventually come on board, they go through, they go through hell. And there are lots of people, uh, uh, mothers and fathers, who are, are seeking psychiatric care for their depression. And what's the precipitant? My kid is trans. So, uh, so I so the question is in medicine: Do we focus on the patient, or do we focus on the larger system from which the patient comes? And the answer is: If if the first thing is your left foot, and the second is the right foot, what what a clinician is doing all the time is is moving between the push the the weight is on the left foot, and then the weight's on the right foot, and sometimes the weight on both feet. And and it's it's I I think that's why we get paid to, to be able to think uh, you know move from left foot to right foot and to and to convince people that they're a person they're not just a trans. Yeah, I often say you're not just a walking gender identity. You're a whole person, and every other kind of experience that affects people will affect you. And I'm also, you know, I'm thinking about the, the population that you were first exposed to when you started doing this work, Stephen. That was the kind of population in which most of the people seeking transition were adult males, which is a totally different landscape from what we're seeing right now today, which is teenage girls seeking transition or very young women. Um, but I'm wondering if you can share, based on the population you have most experience with, what were some of the kind of common themes or distressing aspects of the individual's lives um, that kind of interacted with their gender identity? I mean, you've talked about the family and the kind of complications that arise there. You've talked a little bit about intimacy, but what are some other things that you saw in those patients in those early years? So uh, I would say... Uh... And I'm sort of inventing a term here. Sure. Um, if I mean, I, I've had the experience you just summarized that in the early years, the vast majority of people we saw were older teenagers, young adults, and many times middle-aged adults. Um, and 
They had a history of never feeling good about themselves. What I say, they weren't feminine, they were unmasculine. Their self-concept was of, I don't like myself, I'm anxious, I'm uneasy. When I weigh myself, compare myself with other people, I don't feel like I'm a real man, a real boy. I never felt... I, we called that unmasculinity in our clinics. Uh, we didn't have a term for it. Uh, That's really and, good. Um, so I think the background was, uh, now uh, let me just start again. If I translate unmasculinity into psychiatric terms, I would say this was uh, a problem of impaired narcissism impaired self-protection and self-love, the sense of, wor- of not being worth. Now, the question is, uh, I, I don't mean a narcissistic character disorder, you know, somebody who's like Trump. Uh, uh, the, I, I mean somebody whose sense of self is not positive. And, and see, what's happened is it, it gets focused eventually on gender. This is the explanation for my narcissistic self, my insufficient narcissism, protection and love and belief in myself. So when you have all this chronic unease about the self, when you have this sense of inferiority, for whatever reason you think you're inferior, you see, then you're looking for some some solution, some explanation. And, 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 and I think the whole idea of gender uh, transition, I, I, I was born in the wrong body, is it, it serves that purpose for people. It, it gives an explanation. And you see in Hamlet, uh, uh, when the line is uh, offered, to thine own self be true and it must follow like the night the day thou canst not be false to anyone. This is the idea that this is my true self. Uh, there's this epiphany that, that comes in, and, and uh, there's a rhetoric that says, I didn't understand until now why I felt so badly, so unmasculine, and, and so unnarcissistically uh, loving uh, of the self and protective of the self. But now I have my genuine self, this is my true self. This is, this is what my life has been about. I'm finally going to be authentic. The problem I have felt, I have seen, is that while that's the rhetoric at age 17 or 19 or 21, at, at age 35, the rhetoric is, I'm not really a woman. I'm not really a man. I'm somewhere in between. I, I'm inauthentic as a woman. So all these other women, they seem authentic. And what, what I like to say, they menstruate, you see. And I, 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 I'm, I'm, I impersonate a woman, you see. I like to tell myself I'm a woman, but I always feel in danger of being read. In other words, I, I transferred my, I trans, I trans, transitioned, the, I transitioned <laughs> my gender to, because it was my authentic self. And now that I've done this, with or without medical attention, usually with medical help, I still feel inauthentic. 
So in pursuit of authenticity, I have discovered inauthenticity. Now, I know that the, pop, the popular writing about transgender uh, is quite opposite of that. That is, that when you represent yourself as an adult and you're a professor of English and you can articulate things very beautifully, uh, that is not the public image that is presented about, about, about what is presented is, is, is happiness in the authentic self. Now, it may very well be that those people who achieve that, they never come to see a person like us. Uh, and so we only see the people who are failing at it. Uh, but if you are a psychiatrist on the inpatient service of psychiatric hospitals in Europe or the United States or Australia, you're going to have, you're always going to have, there's not a month that goes by that you aren't going to have a transsexual person in, in a state of depression or substance abuse or have made a suicide attempt. So, so I can't tell you how, what percentage of people end up happy. You see, I can just tell you that there's a lot of data that many of them are not happy. Uh, and I think you could talk about this in terms of authenticity. Uh, and so, you know, after, in, in Hamlet, after Laertes made this speech to his son about, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be, yeah. a Polonius, uh, uh, he then turned around and, and, and did the opposite with his daughter, yeah. right? So you see, w the, we have extracted this as, a, as a, a guidepost for living, to thine own self be true, as huh. though the self were one thing. You see, one of the other things I've written about is, I like to quote Toni Morrison, who says, there are hundreds of pieces of me, or Walt Whitman, who says, I am multitudes. I love that. I and, contain multitudes. That's my favorite one. And, and you know, Dr. Levine uh, has defined 27 different aspects of the self. I'm still trying to get to 100, but I can only get to 27. <laughs> so you, your quote could be, I contain 27 multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, Sasha, what you were saying that, you know, you think you're just a transsexual person and that's, that's all of you. And I say no one is, that's, gender is a part of all of us, yeah. you see, and, and degrees of masculinity and femininity, which no one can really define, uh, uh, we are all, what I like to say, we're all um, individual mosaics of combinations of maleness and femaleness and heterosexual and homosexual desires and curiosities and paraphilic and conventional aspirations or intentions. So I, I, this is one of the major things that, that I like to teach audiences. Uh, I, I point to them and I say, you are a mosaic. You know, you and I represent ourselves as, quote, normal, right? Conventional. Yeah, we represent ourselves as, uh, well, I'm masculine and I'm heterosexual and I'm, I don't want to do kinky stuff. But in fact, in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our life experiences, we're much more nuanced than that. And, and I accept that, that, you know, the internal world of conflict and of, of mosaicism is different than our public presentations. And so when we talk about identity, I like to talk about identity as experienced privately in the self versus the identity that we present to other people. And those are two different concepts, two different dimensions. Social identity, which is often a lie, 
and, and private psychological identity, which is a rich, nuanced, and ever-changing um, uh, mosaic. Oh, so I, 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 like, I, I like to use the, the concept of kaleidoscope. There are yeah. little pieces, and you turn the kaleidoscope, and what turns the kaleidoscope is in our lives is our maturation, our, our, yeah. our, our aging, and, 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 the, and the form, the shape of the image that we see is slightly different, you see. And so the idea that one's trans identity is fixed just like my sense of masculinity is fixed at age 17 uh, or 21 or whatever, is a, to me is a ridiculous. Uh, it, uh, it's just not true, you see. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show. And we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. It's so nice to hear you just lay it out like that, because your perspective here is so expansive, and it actually creates so much more freedom for the individual to develop throughout their lifetime and experience themselves in more complicated ways. And I find it... um, almost like a an indication of i think something that's happening on a larger scale in society that things are so atomized and it's like the mental health profession response to somebody saying hey i'm questioning my gender is actually to double down and and you know like you talked about your patients once they reach their 30s many of them start to feel inauthentic as a trans woman let's say And it's like the mental health response currently is, you are authentic, we promise, you're really, really a woman, don't worry about that kind of um, conflicted narrative in your mind. And I, I wonder if you can comment on, you know, you touched on this is a problem in medicine and psychiatry, but why do you think we have leaned into such an atomized and definition based categorized way of seeing people rather than understanding that we are these mosaics. Uh, So uh, earlier this week, I read uh, something in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, and it had a phrase quoting an anthropologist that medical education involved a a chain of trust, a chain of trust. And and what it is, what we have to trust is that someone has done the research. Some group of very uh, scholarly people, thoughtful people, informed people have said, this is the treatment for this condition. It's based on science. It's based on uh, the evolution of understanding. It's based on tradition, but mostly it's based upon because in medicine, science is the soul of progress. It's based upon scientific study. 
And there's a chain of trust so that we have at this high level, somebody makes the policy based on science and it's trickled down. Now, when you're a medical student or a psychology graduate student, you have a lot to learn about many, many things. You don't have time to look at the basis of the learning. So you need this chain of trust. You need to trust what you're taught. Now, when I was, before I was a medical student, I went to University of Pittsburgh for a pre-medical conference. And some guy held up this very thick book and said, this is the textbook of medicine. And, and he said, 90% of this is not true. The trouble is, I can't, <laughs> none, in medicine, we don't know which 10% in 20 years will still be the facts, will still be the truth. Yikes. Oh, now my that, gosh. That was, that was a wonderful <laughs> introduction to being a doctor. You see wow. that that facts and understanding are changeable events. And so the chain of trust, see, I'm really answering your question. Yes, uh, yes. Wh why, why do we reduce things? The truth is that us very educated people are taught, are told what, how to treat this condition and that condition. I have a master's prepared person just got out of her, her internship who told me how you're supposed to treat transgender people. And, and I was just astounded. I gave a seminar two years ago to residents who told me, residents in psychiatry, who told me how trans people ought to be treated. See, they had a chain of trust. Somebody taught them, and they believe it. They passionately believe it. They have the zeal of the new of the convert to being a psychiatrist or being a counselor, whatever it is. And, and, and when I give them facts, they think I'm an outlier. Or they think I'm an old fuddy-duddy. There's something wrong with me. They don't believe me because the truth is that trans is normal, you see, and, and that they can have highly successful lives just like anybody else. And it's not based on experience. It's certainly not based on any scientific scrutiny. You see, and so what I'm really saying is that so many of the doctors just practice how they've been taught to practice. They, they, we, we, none of us have the brain power. We take care of so many different things. We can't be experts in the in in the original train of the chain of trust at all. You see, so of course we oversimplify everything. And, you know, there, we rely on, on a few skeptics like, like the three of us. Well, and you, you, you don't only rely on skepticism. Um, you rely on, I suppose, working in the field since the 70s. So you, you presumably have a good long-term perspective that not that many people have. Well, I guess that's, that's one of my credentials that I'm old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very nice way of saying it. <laughs> but I, I hope that my, it's not my age. I hope it's the cogency, you see. Uh, like, I, I too like to, over, to, like to simplify things, you know, like you're a human being. Like there's a chain of, of trust. And I actually believe that when it comes to transgender treatments, the, tr the train of trust is untrustworthy. And, and uh, you know, I think whether it's the court system or the medical system, WPATH, World Professional Association for Transgender Health, has been 
is, is the source of all knowledge about this, of all education about this. And you see, uh, when you look at the scientific basis of their recommendations, it's, it's lacking. And, it's, and you, you were the chair of WPATH at some point. Uh, well, I was the chair of the uh, fifth edition of the Standards of Care, and um, we recommended uh, that two letters of uh, – two different professionals had to write letters in order to get hormones, and the president of uh, WPATH at that time took an immediate dislike at, uh, to that – and he decided that uh, while the, he, he couldn't unpublish the fifth standards of care, he wanted a sixth standards of care. And, and then three years later, there was a sixth standards of care that was almost word for word for what our group did, except for one letter was necessary. Uh, that is, he wanted to make it easier to get transgender. But you see, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stay there because I began with with that organization because it was a scientific organization trying to understand this phenomenon and what we should do about it. And I can tell you that when I wrote, our group of eight of us wrote the fifth edition of Standards of Care, we were not looking at scientific studies. We were not looking at scientific studies. What, what passed for scientific studies today would not be scientific studies. We just used a consensus judgment about of these eight people. Uh, and um, so even today, uh, the recommendations from the standards of care are not their, their consensus of, of professionals in the field who earn their living uh, uh, providing these, these kind of cares. And, and there was an article in uh, April of this year, of, of last year, in the British Jour Medical Journal Open, criticizing or, or analyzing all the standards of care used in the transgender world. And they really uh, were very critical of WPATH. And I had nothing to do with that. Nothing. Uh, so, so that, see, I, I, I think it's time for a re-examination of the wisdom of affirmative care. I'm not saying affirmative care doesn't help some people. But I'm not so sure how many people it harms and how many people uh, actually come to feel inauthentic and regretful and develop post-transition psychiatric, new psychiatric problems or continuing or worsening psychiatric problems. And I've certainly seen people who make transition and get depressed. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about this question of authenticity, because something that I've been trying to work out through these conversations on the podcast and just in general through my work is like, if someone were to transition, what would be the most kind of self-aware, conscious and like whole person perspective that they might take to increase the chances of success? And you talked about authenticity and it really made me think about, I think, I think that transitioning with a really clear, honest, self-aware understanding of like who you are, what transition can and cannot do for you. And the fact that, you know, this like born in the wrong body paradigm is probably going to lead to serious disappointment. I think about that often. And I think in my experience, my little experience compared to somebody like yourself, 
People whose transitions have been more successful are those who can come to terms with the reality of who they are rather than living in this fantasy of like, oh, I'll reach my authentic self when I change my body. And I just wonder what you think about that or what comes up for you as I talk about that. Just that I agree with you. Uh, uh, I, you see, um, the problem is that we do not have uh, rigorous follow-up studies of people who've made the transition. Um, I know this is very far afield, but in the early 60s, uh, in our Department of Psychiatry, uh, my, the faculty was trying to find out uh, what happens to women who had abortions. And in those days, in order to have an abortion, you had to have a psychiatrist uh, tell, say that, you know, this was not good for this woman's mental health and therefore she could have an abortion. So the people who did this work wanted to follow up and see what happened six months and 12 months after the women had an abortion, how their mental health was. Did in fact, did it improve because of their, uh, they weren't pregnant any longer. And they could find not one woman who was willing to come back for a follow-up study. So there are certain things that where people do, they don't want to think about it again. They don't want to talk about it again. They don't want to consider it. They ha it was a very difficult decision. They're done, right? They're, they're moving on. Now, in, a, in the transgender world of, of now we have like at least 35 clinics in North America, in the United States, uh, that provides services for trans people, affirmative care. The I think it was 65 last time I checked. 65, I mean, it's a lot. oh, good. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, yeah. All right, so, so um, the question is, where is the follow-up data? Where's the one-year follow-up data? Where's the two-year follow-up data? In the famous studies in, in Holland, the Dutch protocol, the follow-up was 1.5 years after genital surgery. What happened to those people now that they're 23 years old or, or now they're 30 years old? You see, we don't have any data about that. We just have people admitted to the psychiatric hospital. We have people with a higher suicide rate. It's a, it's, it's a terrible, a terrible system. We need to have long-term follow-ups. So we're at nothing. We cannot, we, we cannot answer your question, Sasha, without follow-up data. And we don't have any. And, and the people who come to me who are depressed, you know, those, those after transition, those are just anecdotal reports. I have no idea what the, what the denominator is, you see. Mm. So, it could be 10%, it could be 100%. Uh, we don't know. That's right. And, and, be, and because we don't know, because we don't know, I think we have to say, why do we have all this enthusiasm? Why do we have all this chain of trust, uh, passion, that this is the best treatment. We don't know it's the best treatment, you see. Now, I want to quickly say that while I'm an advocate of someone who thinks or wants to be or considers themselves a transgendered person, I think they ought to have a psychotherapeutic approach before they make any, any life-changing decisions. But I admit that I have no follow-up I, this is not the, on the basis of a randomized control study. I am in the same difficult position that the affirmative care doctors are in. Only 
I have more faith based upon a hundred years of doing psychotherapy as a tradition, you see, and they only have a few years with no follow-up. You see, I cannot believe the passion of certain affirmative care advocates. And see, WPATH bills itself as both a scientific and an advocacy organization. And it, the truth is, my understanding of those two ideas is they're totally incompatible. Yes. So, you know, the answer to your very good question is, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And is uh, the lack of long-term follow-up in other kind of fields of research that you do, is, is it kind of, is it common? Is it specific to transgender and is it, is it, is it kind of a decision? No, almost? no, no. Uh, well, listen, uh, as far as I know, uh, concepts of disease are based on outcomes. So if your scalp is giving off dandruff, we know that nothing terrible is going to happen except cosmetically to you. But if you have a very sharp pain and a, a sharp pain in your right lower quadrant and you have a fever, you see, your appendix or your ovary may break and you could die of sepsis, you see. So all concepts of disease are based upon disability or death. And so <clears throat> that's why we need long-term outcome. We know what it means when your lungs fill up with, with uh, fluid. Uh, unless we do something, you're going to die, you see. Or if, unless we do something for another condition, you're never going to be able to walk right again, you see. So, so the idea in medicine, throughout medicine, is disease is based upon future disability or death, you see. Why, why, would we, why would we be so sure that when you're 14 years old and you think first you're bisexual and then you have an eating disorder and then you decide that you're trans, that uh, we know exactly what's going to happen, that you could never change your identity by the time you're 16, you see. Uh, the, we, we think it's fixed. Where, do, where does that idea come from? It certainly doesn't come from an understanding of human development. Yeah. You see, it comes from prejudice. It comes from prejudice, but it's also what's coming up for me, Stephen, is like you opened our conversation talking about your first patient who explicitly said, I had a gun in my mouth and I decided I will either kill myself or transition. So I think those kinds of stories and those kinds of experiences that are so dramatic and feel life or death for your disturbed patient are projected onto the 14-year-old bisexual eating disorder, now transgender girl. And I think people are having a really hard time um, grappling with the absolute tragedy that exists in suicide. And then what do we do with that information and whether or not we should apply that indiscriminately to anyone who says I'm trans? But Sasha, to go back to your earlier point, when you have that 14-year-old girl, the doctor who's into affirmative care believes that transition will fix this. Yeah. And see, that's oversimplification. Yeah. That's the chain of trust. Now, 
the doctor wants to help. This is such a sincere thing. This is such a noble thing. I'm going to take this disturbed little girl, even if she comes from a disturbed family, even if she's been sexually abused, right? Even if she's been neglected, even if in early life, her mother had a postpartum depression and was hospitalized for for three months. and, And she had six different people take care of her. You see, I'm going to fix this. And I have to say to the doctor, you know, you're assuming you're going to fix this. How do you know you're going to fix this? You see? And can you look at these 16 studies that show you about the mental health problems of adults? So I, I, I think we have to go back to what's in the mind. What are the assumptions that the affirmative care doctors make? And I can tell you, I think it's one that this is basically biological, two, that it's fixed for life, three, that psychotherapeutic non-interventions are useless, if not destructive, and that, fourth, that transition will diminish suicidality and the risk of suicide, and more and equally important, the assumption is that they're their functioning in the world will be improved by this. Those five assumptions, I think, are all highly questionable. I li- that's, that's my diplomatic way of saying all those, all those assumptions are wrong. And so what should we do? And I'd say, ultimately, I, the parents, the child, and the doctor have to recognize this is a very unknown and difficult, what I like to say, fraught decision to make. And it shouldn't be made quickly, and it shouldn't be made without understanding the issues involved. And the issues involved have to do with some of the things we've already said, the effect on the family, the long-term effect on this child, and what this means to take cross-sex hormones for your genital function for your ability to obtain a loving, lasting relationship and your ability to feel stabilized by, by love, you see. And, and, and what is most frightening of, of all that stuff is nothing compared to this. What is most frightening is that there's lots of evidence that the longevity of transitioned people is about 20 years less than people who don't transition. In the general population. And, and so it's not just death from suicide. See, I, I know that the suicide rates are much higher in the trans population than it is in the general population, but actual numbers of people who suicide is relatively small. The numbers of people who are suicide, have suicidal thoughts are very high, but people who, who are actually die from suicide, although in Sweden, in the first 30-year follow-up of everybody who had sex reassignment surgery showed 19 times greater suicide rate. You see, the numbers of actual people who suicide are small. Among teenagers, for example, there's some data that, that's about to come out, I think, uh, that it's, it's far less than one-tenth than one tenth of one percent of, of trans people, uh, trans teenagers who kill themselves within four or five years. Uh, but even though 44 or 45% are currently suicidal. Uh, so 
so what I'm saying is that in the early studies, the death rates from cancer and cardiovascular disease and, and accidents uh, uh, were, were elevated. And what, and what that really means is that the lifestyle things predispose them to physical diseases. So, you know, if you're a parent, you, you, you want to die after, you want to die before your children, you see. Uh, so for many, for many of these kids, uh, they're going to be sick. And uh, I just saw a slide of the famous uh, Jazz Jennings. You know that name? Uh, yeah. Apparently, Jazz Jennings was a very thin, very attractive person when uh, she had surgery. And in the post-operative time, she's now grossly obese. She's, I saw a picture of her. She's grossly obese. So, you know, this is, one of the, this is one of the things that never gets talked about. What are the physical manifestations? What are the psychological manifestations? What are the outcomes? And when the three... Did, when- did you say earlier that they... Is this from data or from data that they're 20 years young... What's the word? 20 years knocked off their lifespan? Oh, Yes. Uh, There's a a study of VA, the the study of the VA patients uh, at 20 years. They have the same lifespan of people with schizophrenia and bipolar disease when you look at tens of thousands of veterans. And is that because of the medical, um, you know, interventions weakening their bodies in different ways? I I don't know. We don't know. I, I don't think I... I, I don't, you know, we would just be speculating. Uh, yeah. But if yeah, you, if you. if you look at the Swedish studies, uh, ten years ten years after uh, sex reassignment surgery, there's the, a slump. The, there's a, there's an increased death rate, uh, and right. in Denmark there was also uh, com- uh, there's a premature death rate about but I think over ten years in Denmark, so. Uh, I, I think we need it's part of the informed consent of, to parents of teenagers and to, to teenagers themselves and, of course, to the adults themselves, that uh, there's a lot of information that you're entering into a category of human beings that has definable problems and, 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 and worrisome outcomes. See, the New England Journal of Medicine has twice described in recent years the trans populations as vulnerable and marginalized. And the, the affirmative care doctors like to blame all these comorbidities and the shortened lifespan on minority stress. And you would, I, think, I think we recognize that it is stressful to, be, uh, to belong to a sexual minority, but, but uh, children who are cross-gender identified uh, uh, who have separation anxiety and depression and so forth? Uh, they're not. They're not having minority stress. Uh, and and the kids who, uh, you know, if you if you walk in if you walk in and see your postpartum depressed mom hanging from the rafters, and then you decide three weeks later that you're going to change your gender, this is not minority stress. Mm. So we recognize with the high prevalence of comorbid psychiatric problems that teenagers many of these teenagers have that this is not co- this is not minority stress they they come to this through adversity through through developmental problems they haven't been able to master you see and just like in the beginning of what we were talking about 
the, the uncomfort with the self, the discomfort with the self finds a solution, a label. Yeah. I'm, uh, right? So, uh, you know, uh, lots of girls have uh, temporary eating disorders, and some of them end up uh, overcoming it, but they overcome it sometimes by becoming vegetarians or vegans. Uh, uh, so it's okay. It's much better. It's much better than having an eating disorder. But see, everything is, everything is in evolution with mm-hmm. human beings. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you are in evolution. Mm-hmm. You see, and right, see, I like to say that in, in contrast to fixed gender identity, I like to say the patient's current gender identity is non-binary or binary. It's your current sexual identity, yeah. you see? I mean, uh, I'm sure I've had identities. I used to be a stamp collector, you know. I had an identity as a mm-hmm. stamp collector, and I don't collect stamps anymore. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, there are hundreds of pieces of me, maybe 27 of them, and... Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and they're in evolution. And uh, uh, I certainly have thought differently about my masculinity when I was 17 years old and worried that I didn't like beer and there was something wrong with me mm. that I wasn't really a, a boy. You yeah. know, like, like I, wasn't a, I wasn't like the other college freshmen who wanted to go to the bar and get drunk or at least have a, two beers before they went to bed. And, yeah. and I didn't like the taste of this. And I remember consciously worrying about what's wrong with me that I'm, I'm, I'm not like other people. Yes. Whereas today I recognize I'm not like other people. I'm unique. I'm just like Stella. She's unique. I'm just like Sasha. She's unique. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And I don't worry about these things anymore. And if you take this very minor fluffy example of me, you yeah. see, I apply that to other people. I think in my work as a psychotherapist, many of my patients appreciate my stories from my life, you see? Uh, whereas when I was young, I was taught never to talk about myself. And I think one of the most powerful things that happens in the psychotherapy is that he, the patient and I are thinking about development and conflict and, and, and predictable stages of life and what we're, we're dealing with, you see? I mean, I just had a new patient who's 90 years old who's fright is very frightened about uh, uh, dying of asphyxiation, and she's she's uh, aspiration. I'm sorry, uh, and I said to her, you know, she and I are of the age group that we're aware that death is not too far away, and and we have to think about our death. And I think you're thinking about your death. I, you're just focusing on one particular m- mechanism of dying. But I think underneath it, you're really worried about dying. And uh, she looked at me and she said, I never thought about it that way. <laughs> yeah. and, and I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so being a therapist, uh, the challenge is what is it that I say? What can I do? that really will help illuminate the person and help that person respect their dilemma. See, I, I, I don't believe it when people say I have no conflict about this because, because I don't know any married person who doesn't have conflict about his or her spouse, you see. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know any lawyer who, who doesn't sometimes hate being a lawyer. Uh, 
I don't know any psychologist who doesn't think sometimes, am I wasting my time? Am I helping anybody? Yeah. You see? Uh, and uh, every time I write a paper, you see, I, I think, uh, this is it. This is the best thing I ever wrote, and this is going to make me famous. And, 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 and then, well, you're famous in our world. No, well, it's just... Just wait, till, hang... wait till this episode comes out. You're going to blow up in fame. <laughs> this is it. This is it. Anyway, my aspirations are never met by reality. <laughs> because Which is... I'm a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's a lot of wisdom right there, Stella. Yeah, yeah. I I love I love that you kind of you rounded on love and and kind of the the depth of the human. And and you stayed there. Yeah, well, you know, the uh my introduction to this uh came from came in medical school when someone presented this idea that if your spouse dies t this year your chances of dying within 12 months of your spouse is increased so that the death rates of people who are widowed and widowed widower when it's matched with age of uh, it's age matched and it's disease matched is uh, is far greater. And then there was the Grant study, which was a 50-year study of Harvard freshmen who came in in 1948. Oh, yeah, I remember and, this and one. And in that prospect, that was the first prospect of study, follow-up study of people who were, when they were 18 years old, were ranked into three different divisions, the healthiest, the least healthy, and the uh, middle group. And when compared to the first and the third group, the third group didn't live as long, you see. Psychological health, as measured at age 18, was somehow predicted adverse outcomes. And so if we say that many of the trans kids have adverse mental health, you see, what we're, that, that in itself, besides for cancer and heart disease and you know, accidents and so forth, that in itself may predict a shortened lifespan. So, so let's talk a bit, little bit about suicide or death in transsexual people. Um, it, it, the issue is it's not simply suicide, uh, is I guess what I'm saying. Um, and and uh, it is sort of unhealthy lifestyle. It's smoking. And I think the underappreciated aspect of this is substance abuse. And uh, substance abuse, is it, it usually begins with marijuana. But if you look at all sexual minorities, the rates of substance abuse is much higher uh, than in the, in the uh, cis population, where it's not small, by the way. Uh, so, so we need to ask ourselves, why do people treat themselves with substances of abuse? And I think it's because they're mood alterating, alterating, and and what we're we're trying to get people to do is to enjoy their life and not be dependent on substances, whether it's antidepressants or cocaine, you see, or heroin or opioids. So so uh, the the difficulties in living a full life, you know, living to a ripe old age. 
Uh, it's just a statistical thing, but but when we study these things statistically, we we see that they they have to do with multiple mechanisms. So, for example, as you two are very well aware, there's a very high percentage of of trans teenagers who are on the spectrum. But if you look at autistic people who are not transgender, their suicide rate is is much higher than the general population. And their lifespan is not as long in the general population. So you see, sometimes we say, oh, if the trans person, if you're trans, you're gonna you're gonna die of your trans state. But in fact, you may be dying of your previous mental illness. You may be dying of autism, for example, uh, and and we're we're attributing to being trans. Uh, so we need to think skeptically. We need to think critically. We we need to be dispassionate about this, and and to be dispassionate, to be skeptical, to to say show me the show me the data, seems to be politically incorrect, which is ridiculous. You see, we want to apply the same scientific standards to this condition as we apply to, say, a lupus. Uh, and and uh, we can't because we have people, do- doctors, who are passionate advocates, you see. And that, that goes back to the, the, the contradiction between advocacy and, and scientific neutral scrutiny. You see, and and we 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 need to endorse the value the, the value of science, uh, and and so the three of us have agreed that we can't answer many questions because we don't have good follow up data. Uh, well, that's a scientific position. You see, uh, that's just you don't you don't need to be involved in this uh, field at all to be, to to recognize that. And many of the people who have reviewed, like people at NICE and uh, the Swedes and, and the, uh, the, the Finns have recently reviewed the data about hormones, puberty blockers and hormones in teenagers and have found that the data is, are lacking, you see. And many of these people who reviewed it, they're not people giving out the hormones or doing the surgery. They're just scientists, methodologists. So, so... I think the three of us are saying, I don't know the answer to many questions. And because I don't know the answers to these questions, I think the questions need to be front and center. And, and when we inform parents and inform teenagers about what they're thinking about undertaking, our ethical responsibility is to teach them what is known versus what is believed. You see? And, and they have to make a very difficult decision. Now, I want to say that sometimes I read papers and they talk about the doctors recommending transition, the doctors recommending hormones. And I feel that's not the doctor's responsibility. I think the doctor's responsibility is to diagnose this, understand the factors that is pushing the child in that direction and the family in that direction and to inform what the parents and the child of what is known and what is not known and what the alternative treatments are. And the parents and the child make the decision, not the doctor. The doctor 
does not have the data to make the decision. If you have appendicitis, I have enough data to make that decision to say you need an operation. But given the state of knowledge and the state of belief, and I want to separate those two things, you see, it's not ethical for the doctor to say you should transition your child. It is ethical to say this is one, uh, this is one approach, here's the data that supports it, and the truth is we don't have long-term outcomes. Right, And we do know that if you put a kid on puberty blockers, there's a 96% chance they're going to take cross-sex hormones, and there's a greater chance they're going to have their breasts removed, you see, or, you know, their genitals fixed. So, so we need to be able to, to speak honestly about what is known and what is not known, you see. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is, not that they're wanting to be dishonest. It's just because doctors sometimes believe the chain of trust, even though it's untrustworthy in my view, you see. And they teach parents, and they make recommendations. And I say they should just be giving options and let the parents and the child, after, their, after the doctor has studied this with them and their family dynamics and understand what's been going on, if they decide to do this, if the doctor says, given the facts, uh, it's, it's a reasonable thing, and I know the parents understand the pros and cons, then I'll cooperate with it, you see? Now, I get criticized by saying, I'm highly criticized in certain areas, by Dr. Levine, uh, you, you get asked, is this, is this treatment medically necessary? And I don't like to use the term medical, medically necessary. I think, that's, uh, I think that's a dishonest term. I say, ask me, Dr. Levine, do you think this might be psychologically beneficial to the person? That's the decision that I have to make. You see, when I... Re- uh, and you'd have to say psychologically beneficial... In the short term, in the long term, in the Ex- medium term. Exactly. You just you just anticipated my next my next. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, that's no. It's perfect. Exactly. Because in the short term, it's beneficial because it's what the child may want. In the long run, you know, all of us are filled with with anxiety about the long run. That's why we're talking today because we're we share the anxiety about the unknown. We really do. Thank, thank you so much for for talking with us. I feel we could we could go for another hour. I think we started these pioneers thinking, oh yeah, we'll 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 talk with them and get it done and dusted in a few sessions. And now I think we're realizing, oh my God, there's so much wisdom and knowledge that has not really been kind of collected. And uh, I I really hope that we see you again. For, for more of this, because that's that's just, uh, it's been so fascinating for us. Well, well it's, it's my pleasure. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, to be accused of being wise is, is quite a thing. <laughs> 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 you, you, uh, you need to understand, though, that uh, it doesn't feel wise. Uh, it feels like I don't know. Uh, and I mean, what you're saying is the wisdom is the recognition that you don't know, right? Exactly. So I, yeah. if I can just say one more thing from my, uh, illustrious past, uh, 
One day I started hearing about people, I started uh, realizing how many people said that they were experts. And, and I began to separate a person who claimed expertise, which I called a demagogue, from a person who was an expert. And then it, I defined expertise as somebody who knows what is known and what is not known. And the demagogue didn't know what was known. See, I know things, a field knows things, and then there are things that no one knows. The expert can make that discrimination. Like, I know a little bit about schizophrenia, but believe me, I don't know many people who, who are more involved with schizophrenia know a great deal more than, about schizophrenia than I, a psychiatrist, knows about schizophrenia. See? So I can distinguish what I know about schizophrenia, which is very little. I know that my colleagues know a great deal more about that than me, and they may have a better idea about what is not known by anybody. So when I'm an expert in premature ejaculation, say, when I used to be an expert in premature ejaculation, I knew what was known and what was not known. And um, I knew there were multiple approaches to treatment. I knew the, I knew the data set that supported one, one treatment versus another. But that didn't influence my expertise in schizophrenia at all. See, so if I'm an expert in something, it's a very narrow topic I'm an expert in. Even though I'm a doctor and you may, somebody may think, well, he's a doctor, right? But the doctor doesn't know much about most things. And, and there's the wisdom, I think, is the difference between demagoguery, which I think many affirmative care doctors are demagogues, and experts, many of whom are just uneasy about what is not known. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.